So you're in a conference. You're you're back from a conference, yeah? Wait, are we are we, are we recording? I mean, I have been recording. We don't have to record any of this. I mean, I don't. I, I mean, I like Anne Marie. I just I don't know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I guess we're not recording then. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So so um, yeah, I uh, I was at a conference at BYU Brigham Young University. Brigham Young. The, you know about this Brigham Young University BYU. Yes, yes, of course. It's in I know Utah. About it. I'm just making a really tasteless <laughs> joke. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Provo, the town or city that BYU is in, is like 95 percent uh, Mormon or mm-hmm. LDS, as they prefer to be called. Yeah. Um, so you know, I it's it's just interesting to be in a place where the majority religion is completely different from any other place that I've lived or really spent time in. Yeah. And Provo is one of the only cities. Salt Lake City is not, I believe, it It might be close to majority Mormon, but I don't think it is. Yeah. So Provo is like one of the rare places where you have a completely different culture and religion, and it really shapes the the, the surrounding area. So I was, I was speaking at a conference there. I think the title of the conference was The Islamic World Issues and Challenges. Yeah. Rather broad-based. So we covered the entire Islamic world and talked a lot about the role of Islam in politics. And uh, it was good. I mean, I like – I mean, it's a a very hospitable place. I think it's very nice that the LDS Church wants to do more on Muslim outreach and educate and inform their own members about Islam – and that was part, as they told us during the during the conference, that was part of their objective. That this is part of a real push to to kind of um, help acculturate their their membership in in the ways of us Muslims. I mean, you wrote a just to highlight for people, you wrote a piece for Deseret, uh, which is the Utah um, uh, paper, yeah. right? Recently, was this connected to the conference in any way? No. Like, did they did they prime this, or did you? How did this come no, about? No, no, completely just coincidence. Okay. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, Deseret Deseret News is Utah's main newspaper, I guess, but um, I, as far as I can tell, there was no there was no obvious connection. I mean. The the LDS authorities decide everything in Utah, so they were like, "Get him to write a piece, and then we will host a conference with him." Is to be that... fair, though, the piece that I wrote wasn't about Islam, yeah. so yeah. But look, who knows? And I, uh, but uh, there is a rant that I want to do. So, in thinking about how to prepare, yeah. since we've had guests, I guess the past um, one or two times, this is a Shadi Demir episode that you guys are listening to. And you probably have come to expect certain things from us when it's just us. And I just had a rant prepared. I don't know if I have the energy to do it or the uh, – no, I have the energy. I, I feel actually pretty lively. I don't know if I have – because you know me. Like for me to do a rant, I have to be like – my passions have to be aroused. Yeah, should should we build up to the rant somehow? I mean like do I need yeah, to yeah. antagonize do you want to prim- or some? Do you want to prime me? Well, I mean um... – I mean, I already had questions to take you away from the rant. So let, why don't why don't you rant? I mean, uh, you're at the conference and what? Like this this has to do with masks. You 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 just you you uh, you were uh, antagonized by by mandates of some sort. Yeah. Look. So look, talking about masks, I feel like it's kind of lame at this point. But this is like a distinctive perspective because mm-hmm. it's actually the first time I've experienced certain things during the COVID era. So just to give you. 
yeah, just to be explicit about it, it's the first time since COVID started, so a year and a half, that I've enge- I've had an extended conversation with a mask on. Believe it or not, a year and a half into this pandemic, that had not happened to me before. Interesting. And so I'm not actually used to doing it. And even the kind of mask that I have is not actually meant for long conversations. Mm. I don't know if there are conversation masks that I can buy for future for future use. I, I, but- I remember actually, just as a digression, early on, there, there were these like crazy masks being sold on like tech sites that had, I think, like microphones built into them and speakers so you could actually. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised that never that never took off. I mean, I was at a you know at a roundtable event at the Atlantic Council, and you know in the building they just we everyone has to wear masks, and you're allowed to take down your mask to sip the coffee and to speak into the microphone, and then everyone has to bring it back up. I had some Balkan people over, and and uh, they were they were not obeying, so I had to I had to chastise them. Anyway, go on. Speaking of disobeying. So um, obviously, when people were speaking, no one expected us to wear a mask, right? But yeah. for the other sessions, when I was in the audience listening, mm-hmm. I was one of the only people, and I looked around, and I so over the course of two days, I think I only noticed one or two other people out of maybe two hundred in the audience yeah. that wasn't wearing a mask while in the audience, and I wasn't doing it to make a statement or anything, and I don't know if a lot of people like realize that I was doing that. I just couldn't imagine spending hours of the day with a mask. I, it also like, but there's another part of it. It seemed like it, and this is no fault to the conference organizers or uh, because they were just following institutional rules. A lot of universities, they have these rules in place for students and a lot of the participants were students. So I think those rules were just simply carrying over. So um, that's not like no criticism there, but I do think there is something bizarre about like no one's like I guess you can be sitting next to someone like I usually wasn't usually there was like a a seat next to me open or whatever but there's just something very weird that if you're just looking straight ahead and you're not even like talking to the other person it's a very odd circumstance in which to feel like a mask is required because it's not a high risk situation um and um, but it, what's also weird about it, too, is that everyone is wearing a mask, but then they'll go they'll they'll still be inside while they're drinking or eating in the breaks. Yeah. Then everyone will be like right in each other's faces and then they're breathing on each other because they're speaking to each other without masks. So that's what I think is really odd about it. It does feel like security theater or hygiene theater in the sense that. People aren't wearing the mask all the time, and they are putting themselves in high-risk situations when they are actually talking to each other. So there's something like really weird, and I guess I hadn't really experienced something like this before. Um, and it was it really dawned on me that there are a lot of students and a lot of professors and people who are in more normal, n- normal kinds of life on a daily basis where they have to sort of put up with this theater and I've had I have had no exposure to this for a year and a half. So for me it's brand new. Well, let me ask you. Um two anecdotes. Again, I it's it's uh similar but different. Uh also, I mean, this conference round table thing we organized, uh private round table for two heads of state from uh one of the Balkan nations, had a bunch of experts around. I had dinner with them um with the two uh, representatives uh, the night before. And we were joking about the whole mask thing because, you know, I get into an Uber 
put on my mask dutifully, get out of the Uber, take off the mask, walk half a block, uh, restaurant, open the door, put on my mask, walk to the table, take off the mask. And then just spent the, the time, you know, talking to uh, them and, and my colleague, uh, spent a pleasant hour and a half, put my mask back on and, and walked away. And we, 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 we noted the, the absurdity of that. Um, on, so on the one hand, yeah, you know, security theater, and I'm, I'm sure you've had that experience. Or maybe maybe you don't put your mask on now when you walk into from the door <laughs> to the restaurant table. I mean, I, I, I do it instinctively and, and it's and I note it almost every time how absurd it is. But, you know, there it is. Um, on the I other do hand- it because I'm a law-abiding citizen. I, I do actually think I, I just got a, um, a cup of coffee from Phil's Coffee in Dupont Circle. Yeah. So I, you know, I put it on while going in, pick up the coffee, come back. I'm at Brookings now. I'm mm. actually like working from the office because I just need to focus some more. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do sort of note the absurdity of it. And just before you go on, I mean, there's other. The other absurd thing is that over over the course of the two and a half days of the conference people start to become lax. So towards the end, you start to see people almost like they can't even sustain the theater because even they know, like everyone knows this makes no scientific sense. Yeah. And there's also something that's really lost. And I guess this hadn't, again, it hadn't hit me and maybe listeners will find this odd, but I haven't been in a situation and maybe, yeah, maybe I'm weird anyway, but I hadn't been in a situation where you really lose the personal connection. There is something really weird when you go into a reception and no one and everyone is wearing a mask, at least in the beginning before people got lax. And it really does affect the social aspect in a fundamental way. And I have ne- I've because I've never had a conversation with someone face to face with a mask for any long period, more than maybe two or three minutes. I I'm this is I, I'm just starting to realize that this this must be difficult, and it it's not just a question of inconvenience. Um, it's it's bigger than that. It's about how you connect with other human beings, and I think that there are some serious questions there. If we want to sustain this for the coming several months or a year, if we keep on having different strains and these rules are in place in universities in conferences. Um, it does have a major effect on um, on really fundamental social and human interaction, and even developing a connection with another human being. And but what's interesting is that like when you're when you're at dinner and you're seated for dinner, then everyone takes off their mask, yeah. and that's where it makes no sense to me because we were spending like the the previous ten hours all masking, but then why is it okay? We're still indoors. We're probably in closer quarters than we were before. And again, it's this question of like, this is a two-hour dinner and people aren't wearing masks. I I just can't figure out what the coherence is. And I'm sure there are some epidemiologists who would maybe defend this incoherence in some convoluted way. I don't know what they would say because as far as I can tell, there's no scientific basis for this kind of odd approach. But anyway... That just to kind of give some more context to people, because I'm sure everyone's been a lot of people have been in situations where once you go into the dinner table, it's as if COVID doesn't exist. But as you're walking to the dinner dinner table, COVID exists. 
Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's 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 the height of absurdity. It's it's funny. I mean, I, I, I feel like, you know, once we're over this a little bit and there'll be comedies sort of routines written about this, some slapstick sort of stuff around it. But but, you know, I and and just to, to add on that, you know, on the the human interaction stuff, the most compelling anti mask argument I've seen is from um people with children who are uh less worried about their kids getting it who have you know read the studies that suggest and again i i, I want to say suggest here because i do think that follow the science is one of these things it's we're we're in medias race right like things are just happening all the time and and uh new data keeps getting fed in so you know following the science is 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 not not exactly you know uh a foolproof thing nor is it you know should be taken as some sort of uh final authority on anything but the people that have kids and are less worried about their kids getting the disease. Um, the complaint about developmental psychology on children, uh, that they're having these most formative years. And I mean, you've been around kids. You've certainly, you know, cousins, relatives, friends with kids. You know, they're, they're sponges, these, these especially at that, that, that early age. They just, they're, they're so receptive to everything. And so much of our communication happens through facial gestures. And one does have to just wonder, you know, if at that critical moment when you're learning how to uh, basically, um, you know, I, I don't know, uh, read people, if you're not if you're not exposed to the kind of emotional cues that come from face to face interaction as a child what what kind of impact that has on a kid i think that's that's a profound question that i think uh the masking maximalists um don't have at all i think a satisfying response to except to say well you know uh sacrifices need to be made and um you know if some kids are uh going to be somewhat retarded in their in their development by a year or so well you know uh it's tragic but we need to bite the bullet and hopefully it'll be, it'll work out um i'll just say you know in defense of masking and this sort of caught me off guard i've been going back to the office and we've been doing in person events more and more at the atlantic council um and uh one of my colleagues um uh is a you know retired ambassador uh you know, quite famous in sort of Europe politics and and whatever, and um, he's older and uh, he's a he's he's a he's a great guy, um, one of the most sort of I think impassioned people. And I I noted early on that he very religiously has his mask on all the time, and so you know I made note of that. So when I'm in these events, I'm much more careful to be strict about it. I noticed the first time that I was at one of these, I was a little casual about it. Like, oh, I'm sitting down in front of a microphone, so I'll just drink my coffee and keep my mask down. He didn't send me a dirty look, but like there was sort of a look of concern of some sort. And I I, I picked up on it, reading, you know, cues, even though not facial cues because his face was covered. But still, I, I picked up on the cue and I was like, okay, noted. And then this last event where some of the uh, the uh, the Balkan delegation, you know, was being very lax with their masks and I had to basically enforce it. I got a text from one of my colleagues that um, one of the board members who was invited to the event, uh, also uh, an older gentleman, um, he stuck his head in and he had made the effort to come to the to the event from outside, stuck his head in, saw, you know, 10 or so people without masks on and just turned around and left and said, I'm not going in there. And, you know, I mean, I think for for 
for older people, and I mean, maybe that's a you know a question for you on you know when you're in this event. Obviously, it's at a university, so it's kids, um, students, younger people. Um, maybe it doesn't it doesn't resonate like that. But those two those two things have made me um, be a little less cavalier about it in a sense. I mean, it's, it's sort of you know we we've lived our lives so. Um, isolated the last year. I mean, not you and I and our friends. I mean, we've seen each other, but we've sort of created a a fun, ironic echo chamber around this sort of stuff. We all reinforce our our sort of, you know, um uh ironic and sometimes sneering attitudes towards these things. But it and 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 you know, when I go visit my parents back at home, uh they're a lot more nervous and I've, you know, I got vaccinated early and, and, you know, I test, even though I don't need to test to fly to Europe, I, I do a test because it, it freaks out my parents, you know, they just want to know. Um, but it just hit me, you know, these two interactions about, about that, that, you know, about, about the responsibility towards older people. And then more broadly, it just sort of made me reflect about how, I don't know, just the last year has kind of desensitized me and made, and made me more antisocial. And I don't mean like, you know, I'm, I'm generally kind of cranky and, and, and curmudgeonly and antisocial, but I mean, I mean, just sort of reflexively antisocial because, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, people suck. Yeah. Yeah. We've been talking to ourselves. Right. And it's, it's like, I, I, I've lost a sense of responsibility that, that has sort of been, um, reintroduced to me <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just well, look, last week. Yeah. Well, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not, you know, dear listeners, I'm no monster. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do think for old people who are at risk, you know, different you'd want to be more sensitive rather than less. So in one on the way to the air uh on the way back to the, um Salt Lake City Airport yesterday, um the, one of the fellow speakers who's quite a bit older, I he was more uh, vigilant about keeping his mask on at almost all times except when he was eating. But generally, he was trying to be more careful, and I, you know, I'm going to be respectful. So for the for the whole ride back, I kept my mask on, and we were talking and whatever. So um, that's different, and you know, I, I take that point. I think that for people who aren't old, though, um, risk tolerance is a really interesting topic that I think doesn't get discussed enough. That most ordinary people don't know how to judge risk. Yeah, And they don't know how to do statistics or percentages. And there was a good piece by David Leonhardt um, in the New York Times talking about, like, if you're vaccinated, which I imagine almost everyone at BYU is because um, the Mormon church, you know, they're not engaging in anti-vax stuff um, and they are encouraging their members and all that. Um, and I'm probably even understating how much encouragement there is. But if everyone's vaccinated and... Um, so in this David Leonhardt piece, he put the risk of getting a breakthrough infection after being vaccinated at close to one in 10,000 yeah. on a given day. Yeah. One in 10,000 is a very small chance. And it, he said maybe one in 5,000 if you're in a red state that has like a massive outbreak and it's just spreading nonstop and all that. So and I'm assuming he's also being somewhat conservative in those estimates, but we're talking about a very, very minuscule chance of getting a breakthrough infection. So we have to ask ourselves a one in 10,000 chance. And even if you do get infected after being vaccinated, 
the chances of severe of hospitalization are all, are almost statistically zero. Yeah. So it's just weird to me that um, a one in 10,000 chance of getting what might be a bad cold or at worst something less than a flu or at, or at flu level, if you're vaccinated, that we're completely changing the way that we live for such a minuscule possibility. We don't do that with anything else, really. So you also have to ask yourself, like, what exactly is the calculation that's being made here? And I think, as we've been saying, I think for some time, there are going to be other strains, and this will continue um, probably for the foreseeable future, at least in the U.S. And the question is, how how long do people want to live this way based on um, a statistical improbability? I think that's a fundamental question. And apparently some people are willing to live in this different constricted way based on something which is nearly impossible or extremely unlikely, you know, probably at the same level of getting into a car accident. Probably less. I mean, I don't know. I don't I don't know the statistics, but that, that also also illustrates your point. You know, you and I like to um, fashion ourselves as savvy and well-informed. So you and I both read the Leonhard piece and you know, one in 10,000, one in 5,000. I'm like, wow, that's a really small chance. But I don't know what that actually means, like practically, right? I mean, the flip side of it is I know it's a very small number. Um, I know chances of getting in a car accident, uh, depending on how it's presented and in what context, you can say, you know, are pretty small. I've gone my whole life and I've not been in a in a car accident yet. So, it uh, seems like pretty small, but then in a different context, someone will say, you know, the as an American, your chances of getting in a car accident are much higher than other places in the world that have or, or other places in the developed world that have um, such and such, I don't know, road regulations and things like that. America is a much more dangerous place to drive. And it's like, oh, my God, we have an unacceptably high level of of road accidents. And that's I mean, it gets a, the other core problem about statistics, you know, I mean, to to get properly relativistic about this. It's you're right that that human beings are are really bad at at judging risk, but I think it cuts both ways, you know, in the sense that it it boils down to uh, certain people are just risk averse and others are much less so. Um, And then you can bandy about statistics and one person can say one in 10,000. That's nothing. I'll screw masks. Another person will say one in ten thousand. Holy shit! I can't. I can't afford to even have a chance to yeah, end up with this thing. The second person's wrong. We have to be objective and rational here. I'm sorry. Mm. The, the second person's wrong. I mean, you know. So it, it gets at that that other that other um, you know uh, element of this of this debate. And you and I bandied this about a couple of weeks ago about the um, the desirability of a kind of uh, strong hand to come and just sort of impose solutions on this sort of stuff, like call it the authoritarian temptation. I think we're kicking around um, the reality, right? Uh, You know, you look at Europe and if you'd asked anyone, you know, this spring what the fall would look like, they'd be like, well, France has just like a deeply entrenched tradition of vaccine skepticism. And um, and so by the fall, you know, Europe might be in a – in, in good shape, but surely France is going to be one of the worst off countries. Um, and then the emperor, Emmanuel Macron, decrees 
uh, by fiat that that uh, you won't be able to get into your favorite cafe, Frenchie, and enjoy your your you know your baguette and your brie uh, and your your coffee um, unless you can prove that you were vaccinated. You need proof of vaccination, and all of a sudden France, you know, just the incentives line up to a certain way, and then and France buckles the other way. So you know, I mean. And this is where I become a technocrat, and this can get us into our main topic. Yeah. Although I will note, I just looked it up right now. Um, according to one source, and it seems legitimate as far as I can tell, <laughs> your chances of getting into a car accident are one in 366, one in 366 mm. for every 1,000 miles driven. Mm. And think about how quickly one drives a thousand miles, like especially if you're going from like DC to Philly a couple times or whatever. One in three sixty six is a far cry from one in one in ten thousand. Yeah, yeah. And and I'll just say, like from my standpoint, I've been in several car accidents. Thank God, none of them uh, particularly serious, but um, ones where you know you had to exchange insurance information and you had to the car had to be towed and had to be fixed and all that. Maybe like a minor injury, I can't recall, but maybe something minor back in the day. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, it's interesting that um, one in three hundred and sixty-six is a lot higher, uh, higher a chance than I would have expected. I guess, I guess the, the the what I'm getting at about the the authoritarian temptation and technocracy, which, like you said, I, we can we can get into some more. Since I've been writing about it, and we've been discussing this for a very long time. Um, what's interesting about you know the question between freedom um and you know some kind of technocratic mandate and you know you find anti-maskers you know talking about freedom um but it's interesting you know the thing that i think gets both of our goats is about you know people who shouldn't be concerned as you say these people are wrong you know it's on the wrong side but if they feel threatened um in a way, that's their right, right? I mean, if they just because uh, they 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 look at a statistic um, and 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 worry about it, and then you know, as a result, cower in fear, um, you know, that's that's uh, that's just a sort of reality. Now, you know, the tension to me is uh, about the the right to impose um, one's preferences across a broader body. And here you and I tend to flip and 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 really are tempted by this kind of authoritarian uh lure, right? That we wish we could get, you know, some kind of leadership to just say you must get vaccinated. But it it abrades against this kind of notion of personal freedom, doesn't it? I mean, am I am I Yeah, so just to be clear, I'm inconsistent. Yeah. I think it's only really on vaccine mandates that I become a technocrat and vaguely authoritarian because generally I'm very suspicious of the state getting too involved in people's personal decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't like that, uh, you know, as, as listeners will, will know, uh, but on vaccine mandates and also I'm someone who's very tolerant of irrationality. Usually when people are irrational, I tend to give them a wide berth because I don't believe humans are are rational in a narrow sense. We're complex. We have different motivations. There are non-tangible motivations in particular, spiritual, moral, religious, 
that makes us act against our own material interests. And I'm very deferential to that because I think that's ultimately what drives people. The, mm. the metaphysical, the spiritual, the passions that can't really be quantified. It's only really on um, on this where I get angry at people's like irrational. Like, so, you know, if I have a friend who's being irrational when it comes to masking uh, or even there's one person in particular who I know who uh, is anti-vax and has refused to get the vaccine, which is really rare. I mean, I can only think of maybe this person and I don't know, I'm sure there and I, of course, relatives in Egypt who are anti-vax, but that kind of goes without saying that's like a, a normal, a more normal thing over there with my relatives in particular, even though they're all doctors, apparently being a doctor and having a medical degree does not um, protect you from this sort of sentiment. But my, you know, but as, as listeners will know, my relatives and, you know, not to generalize about Egyptians, but like crazy ideas. I don't even like, I don't even think weirdly about that. I just, that kind of goes without saying, you know, this is a traumatized people. Um, right. But, but, you know, so uh, what, the question is, why am I less tolerant when people have these weird, crazy ideas on COVID, whether it's anti-vax on one side of the political spectrum or mask, mask, mask maximalists on the other side Max of the fascist. spectrum? Mask fascist. Mask fascist. Yeah, yeah. So I, at least I'm like politically equal. Like I, I kind of look askance at both of these groups, but it's not consistent. Um, I would like a strong hand on this, in part because I'm selfish. I really don't like going into a coffee shop and wearing a mask. So, because I do a lot of work in coffee shops, basically I'm sitting down without the mask. But then every time I want to go for like a walk, because I like to take walking breaks when I'm working, but then I have to put on the mask, go outside, take the mask off because I'm walking around. And then I come back in, I put the mask on. I mean, look, it's not the end of the world. Like, I'll survive. Like, I know that you guys are, like, feeling a lot of sympathy for me already. But I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Yeah. It is really annoying. And at some basic level, um, I'm fine with inconvenience if it's justified. If it's about theater, I'm less tolerant of that. So part of it just comes down to my own, my own sort of selfish motivations. And I just don't want... I just don't like it when people take their ideas. If you want to have these ideas, fine. But if you're imposing them on the national level or on the on the public level and you're you're having these ordinances that are not based on science but are basically um, just there to make us feel more protected, there's just something about that that rubs me the wrong way. Well, but tell me, but like, let's just so we can kind of go to the technocracy issue because... Um, you know, Tom, uh, one of our listeners, um, Tom Barson doesn't like it when I go on my COVID, uh, rant. So I just want to be respectful to him. Yeah. And Tom, look, I know. So these first 20, 25 minutes, I know you probably don't like it, but we're going to pivot right now. Well, no, I don't think we're going to pivot. I mean, I think it's, 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 it's a really interesting thing, um, that, you know, um, and that's what I was trying to do in this this last essay is to maybe like unpack yeah, a little unpack bit of that. this unpack a little bit of this like technocracy thing, um, because ultimately, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I think it's it's cultural for both of us, being that you know we we grew up roughly in the same era. Um, we're uh, you know uh, we're the elites. We're educated. Um, and so we believe in the value of education and rationality, however much 
you and I like to philosophically play with these ideas about, you know, the importance of the rational, uh, the the irrational, the spiritual beliefs in politics, the the political and things like that. I think it's very hard for us. It's very hard for me. I'll speak for myself to when you really get down to it, to to shake um, a certain kind of technocratic reflex on a hmm. lot of stuff. And, you know, I as I was even, you know, I wrote a, a, a Twitter thread as, as we do usually a week after the Friday essay to try and sort of boost it once more on the um, on the interwebs. Um, and I was I was going through my argument. The thing that the thing that's interesting about uh, technocracy is that I think, um, you know, once you it's a really poor fit with democracy, I think, is the, is the main problem with it. And the tension is for all of us that that, you know, in in any number of ways, we see problems that are very amenable to if only we could get consensus on it and, you know, Sometimes consensus be damned. It's too important. Let's just do it. Let's figure out a way to just do it and, and circumvent whatever it is that, that people may want. It's for their own good, the poor idiots. Um, I, 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 uh, I, I, can't, I can't in good conscience you know, play the role of the, the, the really true believing populist and say uh, that this impulse is um, – I don't know, um, inherently evil, the technocratic impulse. There, there are problems that, that need it. And I think vaccination is one of them. It's, it's just a classic one. You know, I mean, I was talking to my parents when I was in, in Croatia. And, you know, I was, you know, doing the whole sort of thing. America's a big woolly place, very hard to do these sorts of things. Um, even going back to polio, you know, they had to do all sorts of campaigns. Elvis had to, you know, go out. And in a time when media was... I don't know, much more authoritative and celebrities were much more universally respected in some weird way, even though Elvis was somewhat countercultural. I mean, they had like outsized impact. So, you know, getting vaccinated was a, it's a, uh, you, you could do things like that, but it still was very hard. So I was making those cases to, to my dad. Um, and he's like, yeah, you know, sure. But, but, you know, certain things, this is what we have the state for, you know, it's, this is, this is the, the, the actual reason what, what states are for is to create this kind of public goods through coercion, basically. Um, and it extends people's lives and everyone's better. And it's not about that. And so, you know, I mean, I, I think um, me more than you, I would say, um, I'm, I'm, I'm more conflicted about democracy. You are, you know, you, you have commitments about, uh, about democracy as a primary good, I'm I'm no I'm I'm I've never been really convinced of that. I mean I, I'm I'm constantly confronted by the importance of democracy in a society and what this does for us. And I always try and check myself and 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 you know force myself to reiterate the case for democracy. But you know I I, I can't help but feel um, drawn to the technocratic slash authoritarian thing. And the argument I made in the essay though is again just to circle back to what I was just saying it's that the problem of technocracy is not moral to me because I don't think I have the the moral democratic commitments you do it's that if you have a liberal democracy uh the technocratic impulse basically 
feeds into a cycle that I think is always present in a in a liberal democracy. Um, this kind of factionalism, this kind of uh, attenuated zero sum stuff, and by taking stuff off the table, off the political table, or trying to, it exacerbates a certain cycle of mutual suspicion um, among actors, among political actors. And so every time you try and impose something like that in a rambunctious liberal democracy, it makes things worse. And again, I think in, call them more normal times or more settled times, a liberal democracy is able to somehow strike a balance on this. If, if, if the society is cohesive enough, it's fine. Um, but what strikes me is that like maybe now, because we're at such a fraught moment, it feels like across the West, especially in the United States, um, it feels like those experiments with technocracy really make things worse. Um, and so that's why I find myself now making these arguments against it more. And I guess I'm trying to do that without recourse to platitudes about human dignity and the importance of respecting people's right to do whatever the hell they want, because I don't really believe in that. Yeah, well, look, technocracy doesn't work even on its own terms. So putting aside the moral normative commitments that I have about um, democracy and individual agency and autonomy, that people should make their own choices, even if they're bad choices. I mean, technocracy, technocracy doesn't hasn't been producing a lot of good outcomes. I mean, maybe maybe it's okay, but this idea that technocrats actually know what's better for us and therefore they're able to implement better public policy, I think that just doesn't hold. I mean, uh, in part because we don't agree on what expert opinion is, even on things like, and the COVID debate is an example of this, there is no technocratic rationalist opinion that is out there at least in my view. So what I would think that the technocratic rationalist position on COVID would be is mask, um, moving away from masks and moving towards vaccine mandates. Because if you're thinking like a rationalist, you want to incentivize people to get the vaccine. The only way you can offer proper incentives is to show that your life will get better and you'll have more freedom. You, you won't have to wear masks. You won't have to take all these PCR tests and you will be free. So we tell Americans, you want to be free Americans? Great. Get the vaccine. We have the mandate. This will compel you to do it. And then you can take off your mask. To me, that would be the smart technocratic position. But that is not what science, like if, if we look at liberal scientists and technocrats and, and most, the majority of technocratic types and scientists do lean left because partisan and ideological bias is such a big part of our society now in our age of polarization. Even someone who has all the best degrees and is like the best scientist in the world on whatever issue is not going to be immune to ideological and partisan bias. Sure. So there is no technocratic position in our in American society anymore. It doesn't exist. There is no possibility of technocracy. Wait, but hold on. You're overstating there because you just outlined the possibility of a technocratic solution to this. But it's no just, one's but no but one's the holding fact that, it. That's different. But like, but 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 the the technocratic solution that overrides the will of arguably two groups, uh, the anti-vaxxers and the max fa uh, mask fascists, um, exists. At least you just outlined it. So you know, uh, 
there is a technocratic solution. Just because we're <laughs> politically idiotic doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And it's it 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 directly uh, quashes the the instincts of two groups that irritate you. Happen it just so happens, right? Yeah, but it's also like a self serving argument. I'm basically saying right now that the only real technocratic rationalist position is the one that I happen to hold. Okay, That's a I mean, little I'm, bit convenient, right? I mean, I'm giving, you, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I mean, I happen to think you're right on that, right? So, I mean, you know, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt as, as being correct on this thing. And, but, I mean, this gets at that tension, right? That, that um, you know, I, again, it's, 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 it's the, the, the main conceit of the, the, the concept of wisdom of crowds is that, you know, somehow, not the podcast, the, the concept, um, <laughs> is that, is that um, right, is that, that, that uh, o- only true wisdom comes through this give and take of, of masses of people struggling through this sort of stuff. But, but I'm just struck by, you know, my dad's reply to me as I was making this sort of, oh, it's woolly democracy, you know, it's going to be messy, people will die, but, you know, we'll get through it, and it's, you know, the alternative is worse. It, there is the question of public goods, and, you know, and there is the question of the state, and there is always, that's so much a part of the state, you know, is 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 um, taking decisions, uh, you know, in, in what it judges to be the public good. Now, of course, look, I mean, when you have a democratic, a liberal democratic state, how we arrive at the judgment of the public good, let's just say, how are you going to build a, build a highway and you have to demolish a neighborhood to do it? Uh, presumably, or at least we like to tell ourselves uh, that despite the fact that, you know, there's lobbying and uh, real estate developers are pouring a ton of money into this idea and uh, poor people have their entire neighborhood destroyed and then, you know, a, a road is built and, and new yuppie condos are, are spring up in, in their place. Still, you know, on a meta level, we like to tell ourselves that there's a, you know, a, a, a system of checks and balances where the, the public good somehow gets expression. And so we, we sort of tidily uh, wave our hands away and say, you know, democracy and, and the state determining the public good, it, it, it all works somehow, even though probably it doesn't. Um, I don't know. I, I, don't think, I don't think, though, you've, 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 you've nailed that why, you know, technocracy can't work. I'll just throw another one to you. Uh, I think, you know, we've been going at this now for how many, two years, two and a half years. So I forget. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've, I've, I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. Um, the question of, you know, human dignity in, uh, in the democratic context, at least as a justification for uh, the kind of minimal democracy. Um, I remember when I spent three months in St. Petersburg, Russia, uh, in 2003, um, hmm. I was staying at, uh, you know, at a host mom's, uh, you know, they put you with a family. This wasn't a family. It was this, uh, uh, divorced woman. She was a, uh, a school teacher, uh, back in Soviet times. She was retired now. So she was getting some money. I was at a language school uh, in St. Petersburg. And so they'd put you with people and they'd paid her some part of my tuition as I was at this language school uh, to basically put me up and, and, you know, it was good for my language, speak to a native speaker and, um, you know, she gets money for it and has to feed me. Um, <laughs> and the, the uh, again, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not shocking to anyone, but, but uh, she had lived through the 1990s in Russia where democracy had had been imposed uh, or had arrived, um, and 
it wasn't democracy can't be imposed just correct a point correct. of clarification yeah correct uh <laughs> it, it had arrived it had been delivered and uh um the the uh but you know it was it was it was that kind of you know gangster capitalism and yeah. uh really chaos and the extent to which democracy existed um in a meaningful way uh is quite debatable right um nevertheless the thing that struck me most of all was that she kept coming back to this question of dignity and now you know she was a school teacher an elementary school teacher uh by nature not a very political person, though by no means a stupid and disinterested person, just no one who, who had any desire to participate, say, in, well, let's say self-governance. And what was striking about it is that, you know, having been raised in late Soviet Union times, where there were privations for sure, but she kept coming back to the sense of shared dignity that they had. Now, this gets back to a lot of the stuff you talk about, about, you know, uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, outcome, uh, outcome legitimacy, uh, outcome legitimacy, and things like that. But, but you know, just I, I was, I had cause to to think back uh, just last night to that episode um, about you know if someone is raised in a in a uh, thoroughly like you can't get more undemocratic than than the Soviet Union. Well, you can't North Korea and perhaps China, but but. Um, you know, a properly uh, authoritarian single-party state um, that nevertheless has commitments to uh, a kind of economic dignity for people. And if you are not politically minded um, and uh, to a large extent quiescent citizen of such a state, um, you know, I, that bargain, I, it just, it, 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 it resonates, you know, like that's a kind of dignity that... Uh, she, uh, I wonder if she's still alive. Quite frankly, I, she was she was already elderly. Uh, but but I I I I, uh, I I was struck by it then, and I, I'm struck by it now as we revisit some of these questions about intrinsic dignity and democracy and things like that. Well, Maybe it's something to to reflect on. You know, when we talk about as we have in in passing about Tunisia and and their rejection of of their little democratic experiment most recently. You know, yeah. It reminds me also of another episode that we did. When we talked about uh, Svetlana Alexeyevich's book, yes. Secondhand Time. That's right. And she has these interesting vignettes where she talks about – there was a kind of – she describes these scenes where during during the Soviet Union, people would kind of like gather in each other's kitchens at night after their, their done work. And they would just – they I mean they had a basic level of subsips, subs. <laughs> subsistence yeah they had basic things covered for them they didn't have to struggle they didn't have to fight for basic things it wasn't this kind of you know eat what you kill capitalist vibe so at some level you don't have freedom you have to be a little you have to be somewhat afraid if you speak out politically but if you're avoiding politics and you're just like doing your thing and minding your own business there was like a certain there was a certain freedom and constraint yeah, you didn't have to wonder. You didn't have. To, there was no, there was no wondering about the other lives that you might have lived. I mean, I think part of living in the U.S. in a free capitalist society is you're always wondering what your alternative trajectories are or could have been, and that can lead to a lot of regret and a lot of sadness. Quite frankly, 
Um, I don't want to pretend, I don't want to idealize and say that people weren't depressed in the Soviet Union. But if you're trying, you know, um, obviously, uh, there were many people also like if Stalin kills your your father, presumably you'd be depressed. So there's also that. There's that. Uh, Yeah. So but but I think there is something powerful and almost compelling. And that's why a lot of people fall under the sway of authoritarian nostalgia, because you look back at this time and it's part of human nature to emphasize in our own memories the good times, especially when things got bad, especially in the case of Russia, when things get bad with the gangster capitalism of the 90s, people are really struggling and it's a shock to them. And it's literally called shock therapy. That's the economic doctrine there, basically. Yeah. Then naturally, you're going to highlight and accentuate the fun, like the positive times in that you had with your friends in the Soviet era. And you'll look back and say, if only we could go back to that time where everything was provided, at least the basic things were provided for us. And we didn't and we had our job and the job was secure. We couldn't really get fired. And that was that. And then we could just go on with our lives and do whatever we want after like 5 p.m. Like that's so that that I think is what stands out to me looking back from what I remember from the book. Yeah. Um, but um, look, so uh, and this is where I think my arguments against technocracy. So I, I would so I'll just mention that Demir and I. And here I'm speaking to the to the listeners, not to you, Demir. Mm-hmm. I'm just letting them know. I that picked we... up on that. <laughs> <laughs> so in our reading group last night, I made this point and I had to leave the reading groups. So I didn't see what people actually said in response to what I said. I, I, I got a sense looking at them on the Zoom call that I don't know if what I said seemed odd to them. I'm sure some of them have heard me say this before. But I didn't get a sense that what I was saying really was resonating. Well, I mean, just I mean, that's going to be a little perplexing to to. No, but to I'll just tell them. But... I'll just tell them what I said. Yeah, go so on. So basically, I made the point that hey, um, technocracy. So we were talking about this piece by Walter Lippmann, where he argues that localism is the way forward because you have to have more intimate knowledge of your local surroundings in order to implement better policy. So knowledge and expertise and and wisdom is important for a democracy. So it was almost an anti-democratic argument that be suspicious of the masses to kind of oversimplify. To be honest, I didn't read the whole thing. So I'm just intuiting what it was about based on what other people were saying, which is always a good way to read things by not reading them and just listening to other people's impressions of what they read. Yeah. But um, assuming that I got that right, I, I, I offered up the retort to the fe- to my fellow participants that this is, so this assumes that the point of democracy is to produce good policy outcomes. That is a huge premise that I think should be contested. What if that's not the point of democracy? Why do we assume that democracy has to produce good policy outcomes? Well, look, I mean, I it's it's too bad you left because the discussion did actually pivot around that quite a bit okay. because it did get to the question of uh, we need a better case for defending democracy than than we actually have. I mean, this is this is actually my challenge to you in the last hour uh, is, uh, you know, I, I, I just I, I don't I don't find the argument from dignity 
actually all that compelling because I do think that, uh, and again, maybe it's just, you know, part of how I've been raised, as I said earlier, and the rest of it, but there is something to uh, to public goods and outcome legitimacy, you know? Uh, and, you know, it's, we can point to, to China, for example, and especially the, the Uyghur genocide. Um, but again, I always wonder, you know, even in that sort of uh, sense, you know, uh, of the, 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 uh, the countless Chinese citizens who are like my, my host mom uh, in, uh, in St. Petersburg, you know, um, and uh, the likely chaos that would emerge after, you know, China collapses and has its 1990s um, as, you know, a supercharged uh, and, you know, the, the Chinese wealthy are already incredibly wealthy. Uh, and as they sort of scramble over the scraps of the, the, uh, the 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 you know the, the carcass of the 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 totalitarian state uh, that's sort of moldering back there as it sort of scrambles towards democracy, um, you know and sure you know they they'd learn about the the evils that had been done in their name and they certainly are ignorant of it living inside this society right now, but you know again the 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 question of I I think it's reductive to to make the case for democracy simply on the base of a kind of human dignity. Or, but let me actually, let me, let me tweak that a little bit. Um, and this was a, another sort of, I think, enduring challenge. And I think this is where you're coming from, but, but you're, you're loath to, I think, put it in these terms, is that, that there's something religious about, about your case for democracy, that you have to have a, a religious recourse to human dignity. It's not, you can't just assert it, uh, because I think human dignity comes in many different shapes and forms and the argument from dignity without recourse to something higher is actually not very sound okay but look Demir, i think that's also a bit of an oversimplification of my argument so human dignity is part of it and Mm -hmm. you do have to have some religious recourse to justify that yeah but there's also um, a more quote-unquote practical argument is that democracy is the only way to regulate conflict in societies where citizens don't agree on the common good, which describes most societies. In America, we can't have a benevolent autocracy because there is no shared sense of what is good or effective. In China, it does seem um, both – I mean, certainly um, I think most scholars of China would agree with this to one degree or another. The majority of Chinese seem seem content with this arrangement that – they have a benevolent autocratic regime that gets things done and they have to give up certain things in return for that. But that's also because China doesn't, as far as I can tell, have a cleavage at the center of its society the way that America does or the way India does or the way Brazil does or the way Israel does or most European societies for that matter where citizens don't agree about fundamental questions about the state about culture, identity, religion, so on and so forth. So, um, so the Chinese model can't work in these in in our societies, um, and what that's that's where democracy becomes particularly useful, because um, in theory, but also I think for the for the most part in practice, um, 
It allows citizens to disagree with each other about fundamental questions and to do so peacefully. There is no, I mean, what is the alternative to that? That is the real practical benefit of the democratic idea. It allows us to live with difference because we have differences. If we were a different society where the divides weren't that large, maybe Republicans and Democrats could sort of agree on some bureaucratic, technocratic approach where, and most citizens would be fine with that because we kind of agree on what the common good is, but we no longer do if we ever did. Right. I mean, my, 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 always my response to that is that um, it's a fine enough argument, I think, when you start with um, any – when you take a, a kind of uh, snapshot of any existing democracy and say, well, this is what we have right now and we need to persist in it because um, what it doesn't address, the argument, the moral argument for democracy, um, this idea that democracy is good – is the question of what what are the limitations of the state? Because you know, taking taking your argument, um, your pragmatic side of your argument, not your argument from dignity, but your pragmatic side mm. of the argument, without recourse to question of what forms the limits of the state, i.e., who is in the community that gets to decide and who is out of the community that gets to decide, um, I think it's an important one because I I don't think that. Uh, Pragmatically, democracy works, let's say, at the limit case of the world. I think the the idea of global democracy, one person, one vote, on a global scale is an absurdity. Am I wrong? That's correct. Well, so, I mean, if, 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 if that's the case, then, um, you know... It, it brings into question, you know, the viability of it. And I, again, I, I, I've said before in the podcast, I'm constantly reminded of uh, the fact that I'm uh, always um, brought short or I underestimate the resilience of America and the American project and its ability to pull through. And I've I've taught myself through bitter bitter experience of being a a uh, you know young contrarian being like ah none of this works not going to work not going to work it, it it ends up working and there is something miraculous about that and it's tempting to say well there's democracy for you it's resilient it's it it works in unexpected ways you know you you uh, a rational smart you know critic think you can you figured out exactly why it doesn't work and yet yet you're constantly confounded by its functioning. Um, that still doesn't address, I think, what came up in the reading group last night after you left, uh, which is, I think, making a a uh, a positive case for democracy because democracy ends up even in the United States, especially at this moment of sort of crisis and 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 conflict and you know potential uh, catastrophe. Uh, the question doesn't go away, you know. Uh, it's worked up until thus far, but but we look at all the the things that are happening right now in our politics, and I think it's it's perfectly legitimate to be worried about it and to wonder whether you know it will go on. Just because something yeah. has gone on, will it go on indefinitely? And that's it's worth mentioning. So another reading that we did last night, this one I read the entirety of. It was an article by Roger Scruton. Um, 
and I will include that in the show notes as well, where it, it was written in 2006, and he's sort of contrasting Islamic societies to America, saying that, you know, there's a reason that democracy works in the West, America, and to some degree Europe, um, and and those reasons don't aren't there um, in the Middle East or other Muslim-majority contexts. But what's interesting is that he really emphasizes that democracy is successful in America because there is some sense of commonality that we don't have existential divides. And he specifically brings up the case that, you know, um, if a Republican wins, a Democrat might be uncomfortable with that, but they don't see it as an existential threat, a threat to their way of life. And I just, you almost have to chuckle at that because just... um, just 10 years later, we find out that the U.S. does have existential divides and there are many Democrats who aren't willing to live under a Republican president and vice versa. Yeah. Um, it's it just like interesting that we we had this illusion. And I remember it. I used to talk to people like um, when I was living in the Middle East during the Arab Spring. I would come back to the U.S. and talk about what was going on in the Middle East. And I would make this contrast that, hey, The Middle East is different because they're fighting over existential questions around the role of religion in everyday life and Islam's relationship to the state and the state's relationship to Islam. And I'm like, hey, and I would make a joke usually that, oh, here in the U.S., we um, it's like about health care policy and taxes and also whether or not Obama uh, wears a tan suit like there was it, it like. That was the kind of contrast that we had in our minds then, and it's just remarkable how quickly that shifted, where um, I no longer make that contrast, but I can help Americans better understand the Middle East because I'm like, hey, you know what they were fighting over? This whole thing about not willing to accept election results that are not to your liking. Right. Like now you guys understand that the Middle East isn't going to be as foreign to you as Americans. You can relate to the Middle East in a new way now. So, I, I mean, anyway, this is just to say that um, it's it's how quickly that has shifted is really striking to me. And just another point. So, um, Demir, you know how I've been talking? Sometimes I'll be like, oh, I'm going into a meeting, so I'll sort of be out of commission. I haven't explained to you what those meetings are. Oh, boy. Tell me. <laughs> so I will I will reveal this to the wisdom of crowds audience for the first time. You, 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 so... Here, here, guys, you're getting some inside knowledge here. Me too. Hashtag. <laughs> Go on. It's not as it's not as interesting as I'm as it as it, I'm making it sound now. This is the end of the episode, Shadi. You're yeah, not going to crescendo into this. Yeah. Well, um, so I'm doing a. I've done about uh, maybe ten interviews in the past nine days. So I'm doing like a at a pretty regular clip. I'm doing these interviews. So they're interviews for my book. Mm-hmm. And it is a little bit like backloaded. I probably should have done more of these like earlier on in the process. I am kind of, you know, sort of cramming them, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've been really interesting and really like uh, basically I'm interviewing um, former senior U.S. officials in the Obama administration, but also a couple in the Bush administration and talking to them about how their views on democracy, specifically democracy abroad, yeah. but there's also broader implications. So we often end up talking about the democratic idea more broadly. But I'm asking them to reflect on the tensions that they saw, especially during the Arab Spring, 
under Obama and then during the freedom agenda under the Bush administration in 2004, 2005 and around then. Um, and it just really in, it, it just making me like a little bit more depressed um, that, you know, I, I don't there's certain things that really can't be solved. And I do have this ideal of what U.S. policy could be. But based on the constraints, and I, I've always known this, but it really drives it home when someone who was like in the room, whether it's in the situation room or had a fascinating conversation earlier today, is someone who was quite close to Obama and like shared with me what he thinks Obama thought based on personal conversations with Obama himself. Mm -hmm. And it just like, you know, it just really... And some of them are like will be kind of new information that I I look forward to sharing with a broader audience, like a level of detail and specificity that I don't think has been reported publicly all that much. Um, anyway, just to say that a lot of this stuff seems hopeless to me. Like there there are and and it makes me like I'm still gonna like lay out what I think the ideal is because I think it's worth striving for it, even if I don't think it's actually going to happen. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't know where I'm going with this, but there is a sort of like, uh, certainly I've, I have a darker view of human nature based on actually living in the Middle East and talking to the various protagonists during that very critical period. But then when you talk to people on the other side of this, the actual U.S. officials who are entrusted with devising and formulating U.S. policy – it also contributes to this darker view of human nature. Everything that, whenever you talk to anyone, it makes me feel like more despondent about what is possible. And then the question is, what do we do about that? Do we accept that and say, fine, okay. Or do we push back and say, hey, it is pretty dark, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't stop kind of setting, not to get melodramatic here, but setting a North Star. And you know what North Stars are? They give you direction. You're not actually meant to... I'm just making this up now. You're not actually meant to get to the North. I don't even know what a North Star really is. I mean, but it's a planet not, at the end of the day. You're not going <laughs> to get to the planet. So yeah, yeah you're, in like that you sense. don't get to the North Star. But what does the North Star do for you? It orients you. It gives you a direction. And you walk in the path of the North Star. No, I agree. Look, I mean, I, I think that's really important. Um, maybe, maybe where I'm coming at it from and maybe why I get less depressed about this. It's interesting, this discussion we've just had, because... It does cut at a lot of the things that that you know so sort of driving have been driving this podcast since the beginning um, it's the question of what is politics, and um I think a lot of times when we look at democratic politics in the United States and we look at technocracy as a depoliticization, and I think both you and I share this um, worry that removing stuff from the political um, is bad for a democracy. It's, it's, it, it leads to a certain, to, to bad outcomes and, and strife and, and strife that doesn't have an outlet. Um, nevertheless, right? I mean, even within domestic politics, there are these North Stars, there are ideals that, that are never fully realized that, but still orient our societies. And maybe the way to think about, you know, international relations and, and uh, outcomes there um, are also best thought of through the lens of politics. I mean, that's something I've I've firmly believed for a long time. And what's fascinating to me about international relations that you know interactions on the international stage 
even though I think people think that's changing right now, are fundamentally undemocratic. It's, um, it's states and politicians acting. And of course, they're accountable to a certain extent to electorates, electorates, electorates back home. And uh, these electorates are, 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 you know, somewhat paying attention to what goes on abroad in their name, but, but not really, right? I mean, you get mm. all this talk about democratic legitimacy of climate change policy and the rest of that, that people are clamoring for this. And, but I, I think it's really wooly. So I guess the takeaway for me in all of this is that, that you still have to come back to politics. And in international relations, it's, it's, it's clear to me that you know, it's, it's a dark art that is a mix of, at the best of times, visionary politicians motivated by North Stars really making a difference. Um, and at other times, you know, the kind of gridlock that is just the reality of you know, fallen human beings pursuing their narrow interests and just uh, screwing each other over in a nasty way. I don't think that precludes you know, your dreams of, of, of some kind of uh, you know, progress on the international stage. But I do think that, 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 um, that it's important to keep the, 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 the political, if you will, firmly in mind yes. and and it's 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 maybe thinking through what the political is that is most important for us collectively to be doing these days because ignoring it which is what idealists of all stripes tend to do um leads to tears i think yeah yeah and i think um that is a more hopeful, you know, um, interpretation in the sense that, you know, if you if you embrace the political, then you realize that oftentimes you won't get what you want, but you almost take pleasure in the very act of having a strong opinion. But in you the don't fight. feel in the fight, in the fight, without without any kind of expectation that you will win the fight. Yeah, because most people, I think, they get into fights expecting to win. What we want to do is get, in, get into fights because, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm mischaracterizing this, we get into fights. We hope it, it's a nice byproduct if we get our way, but we're not going into the fight with that in mind. And we're very realistic about the, the, um, the unrealistic nature of some of our hopes and objectives. Yeah, I think that's And fair. that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly in my case, I mean, that's the only way that I can really keep going, I guess, is by by lowering my sights. Um, and my and, you know, at some point, listeners will, God willing, actually read my book when it comes out like next year. But I hope that this book will actually show people that I'm both pessimistic and optimistic simultaneously in the book itself. I hope people will actually see me struggling. And I actually want to include more of that, the sense that I'm not sure. But that's also a problem because I, I left my last two chapters are kind of indeterminate and they kind of like back down from my own argument because mm. I want they're almost like meant as sort of postscript coda chapters. But I don't know if that's going to appeal to everyone because you know, sometimes you're supposed to have like a really strong argument and like finish strong at the end. What I'm what I'm sort of doing is not finishing strong and introducing uncertainty after I've made a very strong case. So I spent all these chapters making a case and laying out my argument. 
but then I almost backtrack in the last two chapters. Uh, you know, I don't know. Is there an audience for that? You who know, knows? I, you know, I'm very sympathetic to that. You're the one who always demands the problem of the last <laughs> third be solved. I say, screw that. That's just some American nonsense that you demand a, a, the problem of the yeah, last third to yeah, be solved. Yeah, so maybe I just have to kind of double down on that and just accept that that's the way the book is going to end. Who yeah. knows? We'll see. All right. Well, I look forward to it, and I'm sure I'm sure our dear listeners do as well. Right, well, maybe to... this is also – well, maybe I should say something then. Say it. This is a problem. I didn't actually write – there was something that came to mind that I wanted to say to our dear listeners. Here's what I'll say instead. <laughs> Go. We have some really – I think we have some cool things in the mix. We don't know what they are because we're still thinking through maybe ways of um, – adding things or changing things up or just kind of keeping our ourselves on our toes. Um, but because we don't know what that will look like, maybe this is just a good way of reminding people that if you, if you like the fact that we're able to kind of, because here's the thing, if, if part of what we think, if part of our own intellectual approach is to rethink our own premises we should always be refreshing the wisdom of crowds idea. Agree. Emphatically so, agree. So if you, if you support that, if you like the fact that we're, we might mix things up in the coming weeks or months or whatever, it's uh, maybe you should, you should definitely sign up for free. Cause there's no, like it's free. You, you'll get all of our emails. You'll get, you'll get our, our free content. Like that's an easy lift. I think. Um, and you can do that by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash sign up. But we would also like it if you consider subscribing to get our paid content. And you can do that by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. Yes. Those are your two options. Your only two one options. Of- <laughs> <laughs> choose one. And choose wisely. Choose wisely. (laughs) Okay. All right, Shadi. Okay, Demir. Talk soon. Bye. Later. Bye. Great. I actually got to run. I have a hair.